You are now listening to the December 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Disciples of Jesus Christ. In our last session, we spent our time talking about Apostle Paul. Paul, who originally didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, persecuted Christian churches. He thought believing in Jesus as the Messiah was against God, so he participated in the persecution of the early disciples of Jesus and put them in prison. He justified his acts by his own belief that he loved God. Then there was an event when Paul encountered Jesus Christ. Acts 9, 1-5 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and ask him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. The high priests were concerned about the growing movement of the followers of Jesus. Since there was an increase in the number of believers in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the high priests were the ones who took him and sentenced him to death through the leaders of the Roman pagans. Then, a Pharisee named Paul wanted to take charge to persecute Jesus' followers. It would be silly for a high priest to stop Paul, so they sent Paul a document as he requested. Paul, who went by the name of Saul at that time, was on his way to Damascus with a letter from the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem giving him authority to arrest anyone who belonged to the way, meaning those who followed Christ. Damascus was about 135 miles away, located northwest of Jerusalem. The reason Paul went to Damascus was because there were 40,000 to 50,000 Jews living in Damascus, and there were 30 synagogues in which Jews gather for the Sabbath. After the first martyr, Stephen, Christians were scattered, and a great number of Christians moved to Damascus. Although Christians left Jerusalem to avoid persecution, in Acts 8, verses 1 through 4, it says that they spread the teaching of the gospel. Paul wanted to stop Jesus' followers from spreading the message, Jesus is the Messiah, in the synagogues of Damascus, and he was confident to do it. It was Jesus who stopped Saul on the way to Damascus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. The light was not an ordinary light, but it was the light of God, the glory of Jesus. When the bright light blinded Paul, he could no longer remain standing, but fell to the ground, overwhelmed by what was happening. Saul recognized that this was a deity of light. Saul heard a voice in the light say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He must have been surprised. When Jesus identified himself as the very one Saul had been persecuting, the terror must have filled Saul's heart. Why? Because Saul had never thought about persecuting the amazing light. Thus, Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. 
Can you imagine how much Saul was surprised when he heard the voice of Jesus? Saul had intended on imposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In a raging fury, he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Here was a man who truly hated Christ and all who were associated with him. Then Jesus showed himself as the light and talked to Saul. Saul was speechless and began to think about his past endeavors of persecuting the followers of Jesus. Paul realized that what he had been doing for God was against God, and recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah from God. Paul lost his sight after he encountered the light of Jesus. Jesus told Paul to go into Damascus and meet with someone who would lay hands on him. Since he could not see, he had to be helped along to Damascus by others. At Damascus, he also went for three days without eating or drinking. What would have Paul been thinking for three days? He must have repented, reflecting on his past life, without eating or drinking, and he would have had time to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the Lord. Acts nine eleven tells us that Paul was praying. While Paul was praying for three days, Jesus told Ananias, who lived in Damascus, to lay hands on him, receive the Holy Spirit. Be baptized and be received by the disciples there. But Ananias was afraid to meet Paul, as he had heard many reports about Paul and all the harm he had done to the people in Jerusalem. But the Lord said to Ananias, "Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel," as mentioned in Acts chapter nine, verse fifteen. This is the scene as Saul, who had been a persecutor of the followers of Christ, was now called to be the Apostle Paul. How could Paul make such a change in his life? We will continue on with Paul's story next time. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, O Holy Night. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and if you need to use table of contents to find it, feel free to do so. As you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Arlington and Loudoun and Prince William and Montgomery County, as well as those of you who aren't able to join us in person and you're online. It's really good to be together around God's Word, and I want to especially welcome you if you're visiting with us. We are really, really glad that you're here. We're in the final week of series leading up to Christmas called The Sound of Hope, where we're thinking together about the biblical foundations of familiar Christmas songs. So our plan is to do one today and then on Christmas Eve at all of our locations to do another. So we're looking at the biblical foundations for these songs and you can go to mclanebible.org slash Christmas and you can download recordings of these songs there. And you can also see at mclanebible.org slash Christmas the times for our locations, our gatherings on Christmas Eve. Our teams are working really hard to make those gatherings really special. And I want to encourage you to not just come to one of them, but to bring somebody with you to them, whether family or friends, co-workers, neighbors, particularly people in your sphere of influence who may not know Jesus. Or maybe even between now and Friday, you come across somebody that you meet at a restaurant or a store or a shop that you can invite to come with you. Like, don't come alone on Christmas Eve. Invite somebody to be with you. This morning, we're looking at one of my favorite Christmas songs, and I don't think I'm alone in this being uh, one of my favorites. So the song is, Oh Holy Night. Oh Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O night divine, O night divine. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaimed. What a song. What claims that this night was set apart. That's what holy means. Set apart from all other nights. That it was divine. That God was doing something unusual on this night because it was the night when Christ was born, a baby who will break chains, a baby who will make slaves brothers, like will totally change the fabric of society and in whose name All oppression shall cease. What is the biblical foundation for these claims? 
Why would somebody who's not even familiar with all the Bible read the story of Jesus coming in the book of Luke and come to these conclusions? Well, you fast forward just two chapters from Luke's announcement of Jesus' birth, and we read about the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Look at how it all starts. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Awesome scene. Like Over these last two weeks, we have referenced prophecies of Jesus coming, specifically in the book of Isaiah, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So we saw that. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 9, 6, briefly. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So much there, but notice this mention of the government being on his shoulder. And now, let's keep reading this week in verse 7, what it says about his government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this mention of justice and righteousness to come in Jesus the Messiah is a major theme in the book of Isaiah. And from the very beginning of Isaiah, God is confronting his people because they were claiming to worship him while they were ignoring injustice and oppression around them. Listen to what God tells them in the very beginning, first chapter, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12, God says through Isaiah to his people, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my court? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is what he tells him. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Did you hear that language? God just said, I want to make clear what I hate. That was a language he used. My soul hates them. God hates worship, religious motion that is content to ignore justice, that is okay with oppression, that doesn't care for the fatherless or the widow. A few chapters later in Isaiah 10, God says again through Isaiah, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy from 
justice and rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they make the fatherless their prey. God's making clear. He loves justice. He loathes oppression, specifically when it comes to the poor and widows and the fatherless. Other points in Isaiah, we see the sojourner mentioned alongside the poor and the widow and the fatherless. So what I want to show you is that into this world of injustice and oppression, God gives two promises in Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus would come that I want to encourage you to write down because they are both so foundational for understanding our lives, for understanding this weary, fallen world that we live in, and specifically understanding the purpose of our lives in this weary, fallen world. So, two promises God gives all throughout the book of Isaiah. One, God promises that a Savior is coming who will endure injustice, who will suffer oppression, and who will die for sinners. And this is remarkable. This is astounding that God is promising in Isaiah the holy God who created the world. He's promising that he's going to come into this world himself. We read it. Emmanuel, God with us, is coming into this world of injustice and oppression and death to save sinners, which then leads to the second promise we see in Isaiah. So not only will this Savior endure injustice, suffer oppression, and die for sinners. But second promise, a Savior is coming who will end injustice, who will stop oppression, and who will transform the hearts of sinners to follow his lead. Now that's loaded language there. I want to show it to you. Because you keep going in Isaiah, you come to one of the last chapters, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And you see another prophecy of this Savior to come. And listen to what God says through Isaiah there. Talking about the Savior to come. I'll put this back up on the screen in a minute. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Talking about the Savior to come. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you recognize those words? With a couple of small differences, this mirrors what Jesus read on that day in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Out of all the places in the scroll that Jesus unrolled at the beginning of his ministry, sitting there in the synagogue, he stands up, unrolls, finds the place that prophesies the one who will proclaim good news to the poor, who's been sent by God to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Actually, an exact quote from, I don't have time to look at it, but I'll just write it here, Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you keep going in Isaiah 61. It's also proclaiming the reality of the Lord's judgment on those who don't trust in this Savior. Jesus reads these words from Isaiah. Then he sits down and with everyone's eyes fixed on him, he looks at them and says, today, right here, this passage has been fulfilled in me. What a statement. Like, like can you imagine somebody coming up, like, like me, coming up on a stage, reading a passage written hundreds of years before about a Savior to come and be like, yours truly. Like, what a, what a moment. He said, today, this is fulfilled, all this promise, hundreds of years before, it's fulfilled in me. 
right in front of your eyes and your ears. So what, is it, what does this mean? And we, we've already seen, obviously, there's a spiritual dimension at work here. This good news is certainly for the poor in spirit, which we see all over Jesus' teaching. The humble in heart who choose poverty of spirit over pride in self. I urge you, self-made men and women, successful men and women across Metro Washington, D.C., choose poverty of spirit over pride in yourself. Your eternity hinges on it before a holy God. Throw aside pride in yourself. Choose poverty of spirit. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to those who are captive to sin and Satan, its power and its penalty. He's come to open eyes that are blind to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. He's come to set at liberty to free those who are oppressed by sin and Satan. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to all those who place their faith in him. So there is spiritual meaning, potent spiritual application in all of these words. Every single person in this gathering today, every single person in the world has one primary need. You need to be reconciled to God. And that need can only be met by faith in the Savior who came to die for sinners. And at the same time, that is not all. Not that that's not enough. It's gloriously sufficient for our eternal salvation. But follow this. Jesus did not just come to forgive our sins. Jesus came to transform our lives. To give all of us hope that this weary, fallen world with its poverty and captivity and blindness and oppression will not have the last word. Jesus came to give us hope and to revolutionize the way we live and we love in the face of all of these things in this weary world. We live in a weary world of poverty and injustice and oppression in so many ways we could not even begin to exhaust today. And we all, individually and as a church, have a choice. Individually and as a church, we can go through worship week in and week out, do the motions, have the Bible studies, say the prayers, sing the songs, and do little to nothing about poverty and injustice and oppression around us. And God has spoken clearly about what he thinks of this. He hates it. Or we can gather for worship week in and week out and sing the songs and study the word and say the prayer. And we can give our lives reflecting his life, his love, his spirit amidst poverty, injustice, and oppression around us. And I want to urge you individually and us as a church, let's choose true religion and true faith. Let's have nothing to do with fraudulent faith that fakes worship while ignoring those in need around us and around the world. I would urge you as just one practical application to in your giving here at the end of the year, I see that we have built all kinds of ministry along these lines into our budget, and we have so much more we can do along these lines that we have in a potential surplus budget, depending on how much we give. And the more we have in surplus, the more we're able to give to work like this. I look across our church family in this part of the world, in this city 
with all the grace God has given us. And I know there is no limit to what we can do together if we truly follow the leadership of Jesus who taught us truly to love one another, to love each other as ourselves, to give to each other in need, to love people across this city as ourselves. And not just people who live near us or look like us or think like us. To love the nations as ourselves. Even some who the world might say are our enemies. To love them as ourselves. Like, this is the law of our Savior. Love for people in need. His gospel is peace. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother. That's exactly what Paul says in the Bible to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, a former slave. Paul says, Philemon, do you realize he's not a slave or a bondservant? He's our brother in the Lord. Jesus has made this total relationship transformation. Just think of what would have happened if more professing followers of Jesus in the 1800s, when this song was written, had realized the reason for Jesus coming and had followed Jesus' lead, yes, to proclaim the good news of reconciliation with God and to work on behalf of the enslaved and the oppressed. Frederick Douglass, in probably his most famous speech amidst slavery, quoted from Isaiah chapter 1, what we've read today, and he pleaded specifically with the church to follow Jesus' lead, saying, if Christians and churches alone would stand against slavery, quote, this whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds. But so many Christians didn't. So many Christians professed the gospel and worshiped every Sunday while ignoring the poor, impressed, oppressed, and enslaved right around them. And so many people suffered as a result. With examples like this spread across history, may God help us today to follow Jesus' lead in a world where we are surrounded by countless people who are impoverished, enslaved, orphaned, widowed, displaced. I was talking yesterday in a store with a man whose family is from Syria. I just met him, and he was talking about how people have totally forgotten about the refugee crisis there, including his family. As I listened to him, I thought about millions, even billions of those struggling in these ways who are totally unreached. They've not heard the good news of who Jesus is and why he came that we sing about in all these songs. So let's give our lives today to following Jesus' lead and showing Jesus' love in a weary world with confidence that one day in his name, all oppression shall cease. Like our Bible reading right now is in the book of Revelation. A book that reminds us where all of history is headed in the end. To his government fully and finally reigning. To Jesus returning and his justice and his righteousness being made known. And it's this confidence, not only in why he came, but in what's going to happen when he comes back, that causes us to live and love sacrificially and generously with hope today. You remember how Martin Luther King's famous speech, How Long Ended? How long will prejudice blind the visions of men, darken their understanding, and drive bright-eyed wisdom from her sacred throne? When will wounded justice be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men? He said in the middle of civil rights battles. He said, I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It will not be long because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. 
He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Yes, sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. He's the Lord. He has come and he's coming back. And when he returns, there will be no more poverty, no more injustice, no more oppression, no more sorrow, no more evil, no more sin, no more pain for all who have put their hope in him. He will remove all of these things once and for all. And we will praise his name forever. Forevermore, we will proclaim his power and his glory. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me all across this room and all the locations online where we're gathered. This is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord. I just want to ask every single person within the sound of my voice, have you put all your faith, all your hope, all your trust in him alone to save you from your sin? And to transform your life. If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, I invite you just right now in your heart to say, today, make this the day where you say, God, my creator, I know that I have sinned against you. Today, I believe that Jesus came to endure injustice, suffer oppression, and die for my sin. Today, I place my faith in him, and I ask you to transform my life. Make my life his life. As you pray that, and for all who have, place your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. Can we just pray together before God and say, God, help us to follow Jesus' lead. Help us to do what you have called and commanded your people to do all throughout history. God, we we are not so foolish today as to think that what others have done who've gone before us, we would never do. We realize that it's it's possible in us to pretend faith and to go through religious motions and ignore justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's possible for us to think we're worshiping you when we're doing that which you hate so we pray may it not be so among us may it not be so in each of us and may it not be so in all of us together God make make our lives a reflection of the life of Jesus we pray by your power in us Jesus by your love for us lead us to do justice and to love mercy and to proclaim your gospel as we portray your love in this weary world in which we live. And we pray this would be the mark of McLean Bible Church, that we as a church family would hold fast to hope in Jesus with faith in Jesus alone for our salvation and with lives that reflect Jesus' love for people in need all around us for this city, for the nations. God, please, may it be so. We pray that you would lead more of us to foster, to adopt, to care for widows, to help sojourners, refugees. You would lead more of us to work in ways that 
lead to justice and righteousness and good for others. God, that you would use our lives to care well for the poor among us and around us and far from us. God, may all these things that we see in your word be true based on the coming of Jesus for us. In his name we pray, in the name of the one who will one day end all injustice and oppression. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 602- 866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series.
2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That's how God does it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, we don't want to be like the Pharisees who idolized the word and they didn't obey the Lord. They listened to the word, they had it, but they didn't obey it. They didn't obey it because their hearts were not right. What the word did for them was elevate pride in their lives as they did things externally, rather than being humbled and recognizing they were sinners in need of a Savior who would change their life and bring about changes on a daily basis if they trusted him. The opposite happened. But it is a light for us in a dark world to which we do well by heeding. And that leads us to our passage, because from that portion in which we are to pay heed to the word of God as believers, we see the value of God's word because of where it came from. It came from the living God himself. Turn with me again to Second Peter chapter 1, and here's our passage, verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now in the NESB we have in the beginning of verse 20 a conjunction, the word but. And I often prefer the NESB, but I don't think this translation is the best when compared to the original language. Instead, verse 20 begins with what's called a participial phrase. What do I mean by that? You could literally translate it this way. Knowing this first. Knowing this first. Now the translators for the NESB put the conjunction there because they want to connect it, and that's right. But I think I prefer the participle of the way the New King James translates it. Knowing this first, or first of all. Which means this does not stand on its own. Verse 20 does not stand on its own. Knowing this, gnosko, knowing... This, first of all. And what is it connected to? Well, the main verb here is, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure. That's the main phrase. We have the prophetic word made more sure, and then another phrase, to which you do well to heed, knowing this. You see what I'm saying? We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you need to heed, knowing this. Heed it. Knowing something, knowing something. Heed it, knowing something, primarily above all things. And so we have the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention, knowing this first of all. So with this in mind, what is it that we are to know first of all? What does the author, inspired by the Spirit, want us to know? What does God want us to know primarily above all, which will help us in the context of heeding God's word? which we have made more sure. Look at our passage. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now this sounds like a really easy verse to say and talk about, but it isn't. This is a very difficult verse. And I have struggled over this passage for about a month and a half as I've been studying it. Lord, what is your intended meaning? What do you mean here? Because there are differing interpretations for this passage. There are differing interpretations. There are basically three common interpretations. I'm going to share those. I'm going to go and then share what I believe I think it's saying. The first interpretation is such that the written word, the written word, no prophecy of scripture, is a matter of one's own interpretation. It is not up to man to bring about what the meaning is. The term interpretation means meaning. What does it mean? It is not up to man to bring up the meaning of this. Why? Verse 21, 4, it came from God, not man. Okay? Now, many translations translate it this way. You see that that's what they're aiming towards in their translation. Second common interpretation The written word did not come about or originate from man's own interpretation. 
for it came from God, not man. We're going to see that's possible too. The first two interpretations here are actually both true, but which one is from there? We're going to talk about that. The third interpretation is one that the Catholic Church has used for years to keep parishioners from interpreting the Bible on their own apart from the Catholic Church. They use this as a proof text to say, you can't understand it on your own. You need the church to help you understand it. Therefore, you should not be reading your Bible, basically is what they're implying. We need to share that with you because we have the interpretation. Now, I know that's not true. I know that interpretation is not true because we see many other passages that it falls on its heels. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for these things, for every good work, for the godly man, right? Not for the church to bring forth, but for God's word to work in our hearts. First Corinthians chapter 2, we have the things freely revealed to us, not the church, but to us. And the explanation also in verse 21 leaves out the Catholic Church there. It says, for, and it has nothing to do with the Catholic Church, it has to do with God's Word. So I believe that third interpretation is absolutely incorrect based on other passages, and we're going to see that today. So in light of that, which interpretation of 20 is what God intended? Is it that, first of all, primarily, no written word, prophecy of Scripture, is up to anyone to interpret on their own? in terms of what they think it means? Or is it saying, specifically, that the written word did not come about from one's interpretation? Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. So what we need to know, first of all, is that we do well to pay attention because of something, knowing this. What is it that we need to know? Because we know something. He's assuming you already know it. You already know this continually, habitually. Brothers and sisters, you do well to heed the word of God, knowing this truth. Knowing this truth. Continually, habitually. Well, what is it that we know primarily, above all? Primarily, first of all. But know this first of all. What is it that we know? Well, the scripture, as I read it, in the NSB says that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And again, this is a difficult portion, but I'm going to share some work and we'll come together and hopefully get an understanding of it as we look at these pieces. The simple meaning of this passage is not hard to understand, no matter what we talk about here. It's that God wrote his word and it's his word. That's the simple meaning. Don't get away from that. That's the most important thing. Okay? But notice what he says here. We have a continual habitual knowledge that... No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Then there's an explanation. Verse 21. So with this in mind, let me share some pieces here that I studied and help me understand what I think it means here. First of all, the phrase prophecy of Scripture in verse 20. We have this term prophecy. Prophecy speaks of that which comes forth. It is God's word that came forth, as we're going to see, through man. And the term scripture, graphe, speaks of the written word. No prophecy in the written word, prophecy of scripture, is a matter of one's own interpretation. What I find interesting as I observe this passage is, verse 20 says prophecy of scripture, verse 21 says prophecy. Why does it not say prophecy of scripture? Remember that, okay? That's going to be helpful interpreting. And then we see this term one's own. Look at this here. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That term is a very distinct Greek word which spoke of that which belongs to a particular person. It's actually sometimes translated private, belonging to an individual or person. It could speak of one's own family, one's own possession, one's own anything. It is theirs. That's the emphasis. That's the emphasis, okay? Yet here it is linked to this term interpretation. One's own interpretation. Now there's a lot that's been said about this word interpretation. The term interpretation, if you look it up in a dictionary, speaks of bringing forth the meaning of something. Right? Bringing forth the meaning. And we're going to see there's a difference between declaration, which prophets did, and actually bringing forth the meaning, which is interpretation. That's important. This term interpretation 
Some people have said it's not the best translation here. And yet I believe it's the best. And you'll look at almost every version they put in the term interpretation, because I think they see it also as the best translation. It comes from the Greek word epileusis, epion, luso, to untie. It means to release, which we get the idea. If I'm interpreting something, I'm releasing the meaning, right? There's something that's being spoken. I'm not sure of the meaning. When it is interpreted, it is released. So I believe it's the best translation here, interpretation, even though some say it's not. Okay? Now there's another issue in this passage. You could tell I was busy the last month and a half. The verb translated is in the NSB in the New King James actually comes from the Greek verb ginomai. What does that mean? The verb speaks of often origin. To come about, to become, to happen. It has that sense of something coming about or happening or becoming. That puts another monkey wrench into this. And this has led many to believe the second interpretation I mentioned earlier, that since we have the prophetic word, do more sure, which we do well to heed, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of the written word came about, was originated from one's own interpretation. That's the second portion here. Because it's God's word, not man's, verse 21. That's true. But I'm hung up here because of the word interpretation. Prophets didn't share interpretations. They shared God's word. They declared it, and people interpret God's word. That's where I'm hung up on that. And that's where I just couldn't, like, Lord, I just can't say I agree with this if I can't agree with it. Let's take a little more look at it. So basically, what would be said in that second interpretation is that no prophecy of the written word came about by one's interpretation or explanation. The point is, as we're going to see in verse 21, which is true, that nobody came along and thought up what God should say and then brought it forth. That is absolutely true. No one has done that. But is that what this is saying? We know it's true. Let's take a look here. Now, although I'm not sure, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what I think, I'm going to share what I, what I think it might be. I think it could be saying we must know first of all that all scripture is not subject to one's interpretation or explanation. All scripture is not subject to one bringing forth, originating their own interpretations. I believe that's possibly what it's saying. Why? Because it didn't come from man, but from God. You can't just come to the word of God and say it means anything you want. Because it's not man's word, it's God's word. And this is the problem I have here that helped me kind of move to this, is the word interpretation. If he had said that the written word is not a matter of one's own declaration, I would say yeah. But here he says interpretation. Why? Because it didn't come from man, but from God. This Greek word speaks of origin. And so this is my translation, which I think might be helpful. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes one's own personal interpretation. No Scripture that is written becomes one's own personal, one's own, mine, I own it, interpretation. Why? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. We have the Spirit-inspired Word, and it is the Spirit of God, which we will see in other passages, that interprets and illumines the Word of God. Peter here is speaking of completed prophecy written. And then he goes back to speak of prophecy itself. He doesn't say of Scripture. For no prophecy, speaking of all those prophecies in the Old Testament, where God spoke forth through man, some was recorded, some wasn't. For none of that came by man's will, but by God. If God's word is from his mouth, and it never was brought forth by an act of human will, then man has no right to say what it means, because it's God's word. It's what he intended. So look at verse 21. Notice this. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. No prophecy not just prophecy of the written word, which was completed at that time, being completed. 
And this word made actually comes from the Greek word pharaoh, which means to carry or to bear forth. No prophecy, nothing that God spoke through man actually was carried by an act of human will. Never ever did man decide to say something and say it for God. God spoke through man. He carried them along, as we will see, by his Holy Spirit. Now the term translated will here speaks of one's desire or the result of what one has decided. It is also modified by the term anthropos, which speaks of man. But notice, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of one's own interpretation. That's a good way to translate it. For no prophecy was ever made or by an act of human will. You see, what God brought forth through human beings was never carried forth by human desire. Not one single word. And those who don't know God, don't believe in God, those who say they do but are liars, will say, well, the writer here was feeling this way, so he said it this way. The reality is God used circumstances and events, but he brought his word through them, not by their own desire or will. It is God's word, not from men. That's why we do well to pay heed. We better listen because it's God's word and not man's word. We better not reinterpret it because it's God's word and not man's word. It is not up for grabs what God meant. God had a meaning in what he said. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Or you could say it this way, but know this first of all, that no prophecy becomes a matter of one's own interpretation. It doesn't become that. Because... No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but notice the contrast here. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In the middle of verse 21, we have a conjunction, which is a Greek word, Allah, which means but rather, instead. The meaning of God's word is not for grabs, because it was never, ever carried forth by man by man's will or desire, but rather in contrast, end of verse 21, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here we have the incredible reality of how God brought forth his word through human beings. Not one bit of it came from the desire of the human being. It completely came and was they were carried along. The word brought forth speaks of being carried along. The Holy Spirit carried them along, and they spoke from God. Look at that. But men moved or carried along Pharaoh by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, God used his spirit to bring forth his word. People just didn't independently say, God said this. God used his spirit to move men to speak his word. This is what we call inspiration. It is God breathed by his spirit through his spokesman. Every bit is from his mouth. Every bit. It is not from man. It is from God. Therefore, you better heed it. That's the point. Him, 
Now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.